Good morning, Harrison Bridge. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. I am so excited. I'm always excited on Sunday, but today, especially as you saw, we got to celebrate baptisms as there are always uh, special Sundays. And I say this to the last service. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized, this is your next step. And so my encouragement to you would be that you start that conversation today. We have a baptism date in August. We also have one in September. If that doesn't work, we have plenty of options out there to help you walk in obedience to being baptized as a public proclamation of your faith there. Secondly, it's an exciting Sunday because there's the least shared. Uh, as soon as we say amen here, uh, my car is barreling towards our downtown campus, and we are getting together with 138 total people and heading to New Orleans, which will arrive around 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. this morning, and so uh, or tomorrow morning. Uh, but it will be a fun time. We are so excited, looking forward to a week of serving. Uh, we say New Orleans, but actually be the community of Homa, a few minutes outside, 40 minutes outside of there, that we get to serve with construction and community ministry. Uh, 98 high school students are going, and that's almost double what we took last year. And so uh, praise God for that, and we're praying for open doors. And so as you think about us suffering in that heat this week, please pray for us. All right? Pray for strength and pray for open doors there. And so uh, that's the second reason. Third reason is that we get to start this new series. And I've been looking forward to this series for quite some time. You saw it on the bumper video. We're walking through the book of Daniel for the next few weeks together. And so really giving us a, a big, broad scope of the book of Daniel before we hop into our, our focus today. Let me just walk out a few things that are happening in the book of Daniel. One, as the book of Daniel opens up, as we'll see, uh, they are actually a conquered people at this time. That is, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army have pressed down upon them. They have conquered uh, God's people. They have killed a lot of them and carried some of them away into exile. And so it's not an ideal circumstance to be saying quite the understatement there. But we ask this question then, well, why did that happen? Well, from a worldly standpoint, King Nebuchadnezzar, one of our residents said this this past week, that King Nebuchadnezzar, through history, is regarded as the fourth most powerful ruler in all of world history. And so you're dealing with a guy who was quickly ascending here. You're dealing with a guy who was building the Babylonian Empire, and you're dealing with a guy who was not just content to stay at home. But he, well, so he uh, led out of Babylon, and in 605 BC, he engaged in the Battle of Carchemish, where Egypt is defeated. And so as Egypt is defeated, they turn their eyes now to the vassal states. Those are states and countries that have served Egypt in exchange for protection. And so God's people had pledged their loyalty to Egypt. God told them not to, but they did anyway. And this is a recurring theme in the Old Testament, by the way. And so they pledged their loyalty. And so when Egypt is defeated in 605, guess where the gaze turns towards? It's Israel. It's God's people. And so they start heading towards God's people to conquer them. Now, the spiritual reason this is happening, you can read, I would say, 1 Kings and 2 Kings to get a good idea of this. God has told his people, even before they entered into the promised land, in fact, my Bible reading plan had me this morning at the end of Deuteronomy, where God is telling them through Moses, hey, if you listen to me, things will go really well for you. 
If you don't listen to me, things will not go really well for you. And so we're seeing that play out here. In First and Second Kings, you find this again and again. Rulers and people who are constantly going away from God, who are constantly swerving off the path that God has called them to. And God sends them graciously message after message, messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet. And he says, all you have to do is return to me and I'll fix this thing. I'll take care of it. But yet again and again, century after century, God's people refuse to turn to him. And so we end up with the events in Daniel 1. And it should not come to, surprise, come to surprise those who are in the people or that are the people of God at that point. It should not surprise us when we disobey God that God does allow sometimes things like this to happen. Why? Not because he's a mean God, not because he's a vindictive God. But really, this was to get the people's attention to return to God even while they were in the exile here. And so the question becomes, as Daniel and his three friends, as we'll talk about for the large part of today... How will they live in exile? To put it another way, you saw it on the screen there. How can we thrive in Babylon? Because we have to come to an understanding. Babylon is not just a physical place in the book of Daniel. In fact, Babylon exists today. We live in Babylon. Now, we don't like to hear that, right? We live in America. This is a Christian nation. And, and listen, I want us to be a Christian nation, right? That would be really great. But our culture resembles far more Babylon than it does Jerusalem. And so we have to get in that mindset today as followers of Jesus and ask the question, how shall I then live? What does that look like? Because a lot of us, myself included, are tempted to just simply survive in Babylon, right? They don't like the Jesus I follow. They may shout me down. I'm just going to stay in my little corner over here and just survive until Jesus comes back or I go to see him. But we'll see the call here today is really not to survive, but really to thrive in Babylon. And here's what we find. Today, if we want to thrive in Babylon, we must remain committed to Jesus. That's the key word flowing throughout this whole Daniel 1 passage is commitment. Think about some things that you commit to, right? I was yesterday at a wedding ceremony, and they held up a ring, and they said, this is a symbol of your commitment, your vows here, right? If you're married, you have a wedding ring here. This is a, a symbol of my commitment to my wife, Melody. But the other cool thing is, this is my granddaddy's ring. That he wore for 60 years. He was married for 60 years. And so not only is it a reminder of my vows and my commitment, but the example of my granddaddy's commitment and how he walked that out for me. So we see commitment that way. You know, another commitment is when I was pursuing Melody, trying to date her. Her dad's an associate pastor of music down at First Baptist Columbia. And he oversees a, a very large choir down there. And here I was, some punk, 20-something-year-old, and I'm like, man, i got to curry favor with this man who's really intimidating, right? He's like a go-getter type deal. And so I'm like, how do I do that? And I'm like, well, I joined the choir. If you've stood on the front row or the music team can tell you up here, I do not belong in a choir. I do not belong anywhere near a choir. I cannot sing. I can't carry a tune. I don't know what a tune is. I don't know what a melody is. I can't read notes. I have no business around any musical instrument whatsoever. But here's the thing. I joined that because I was like, man, I got to get on this good side. And so here's the other part of that, too. My buddies were in there. They're all tenors. As you can tell from my voice, I'm not a tenor. Guess where I sang? You had a bass in the tenor section because I want to hang out with my boys, right? I told them, here was the deal. They make me sound good. I make them look good. That's how it goes. So, but here's the thing. Even like 15 to 18 years later, I can walk in the First Baptist Columbia. If I was there this morning, I'd walk in. I'd still hear this question from Mr. Steve, my father-in-law. He said, Corey, 
You ready to sing? Got a robe in the back for you. Now, I haven't been to choir practice in years, but I would be up there. You would see my face in First Baptist Columbia Choir. Why? Because that commitment is lifelong, apparently, is what's been said to me. That commitment never ends. But commitment, even more from a spiritual standpoint, what are we talking about today from Daniel and the Babylonian standpoint and what it means for us here today? As we said, commitment is a higher cost than just joining a choir or even a a marriage wedding band there, if you want to say it that way. Because as we said just a moment ago, if we want to thrive in Babylon, commitment is key. Commitment is the priority. We must, that is, followers of Jesus must remain committed to Jesus to thrive. And so look with me, Daniel 1 As we read through most of this chapter, Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, we're going to stop right there. And some of you are like, this is just intro verses. Can't we just skip this and get to the good stuff of Daniel and the boys in there? And we'll get to it. But as I was studying this week, just some, some scholars were pointing out, and I'd honestly, I've told on this passage dozens of times, I never realized this. One of the major moments in this passage had just been read. And it's not necessarily King Nebuchadnezzar coming down to conquer, but it's when he carries away the vessels of the house of God. Why? Because these were symbolic of God's presence, of God's approval of his people. And so when they ransack the temple and they carry away those vessels, here's what is communicating to King Nebuchadnezzar and his people. That the God of the Bible has just been defeated by the false gods of Babylon. That's a significant moment there. And you'll find these actually come up to play in a little bit. In Daniel 5, as we walk through this, you will see there's some very devastating things that happen when the people of Babylon start messing around with these vessels here. Why? Because God's holiness is on display and you do not mess around. But at this moment, at least for King Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon, they are thinking to themselves, the God of the Bible has just been defeated. Now, we know that's not the truth, but this is the thinking at this time. Continuing on, verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael. He called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. So now we're introduced to the people that we most associate the book of Daniel with. Daniel and his boys, right? Daniel's, Daniel, Daniel and the other three men here. And so what we find, give you a little bit of background of these men, is they're there when their homeland is conquered. Now, the age range that most scholars put them in is somewhere between 14 to 17. So if you're a parent and you have a high schooler going to serve with us, a high school boy, this is the age range we're talking about here. Freshman in high school to a senior in high school. And so think about this. It's one thing for you and me as adults, right, as a 37-year-old to be in a conquered land and to be carried off elsewhere, right? That's bad enough. But to do it at a high school age, right, to walk through that, I can't even begin to imagine what high school Corey would have done in terms of processing this event. I didn't have the mental capacity to do it, 
right? I didn't know how to even process that. But here we find four young men of a high school age having to walk through emotional, mental, and spiritual trauma of losing everything they've ever known, right? More, more than likely, they saw their parents killed here. Their parents did not make the trip to Babylon. And now you're ripped out from everything you're known. you've known, every routine, every belief comfort that you have, right? The temple is over here, but now the temple's not there anymore. Every relationship that you've had is either gone away or it's changed drastically. And now you're carried off to this place called Babylon, which we know of these four they'll never return from. Think about that. As we talk about their commitment and faithfulness, they keep that in mind. As we walk through the series, keep that in mind. It makes it even more remarkable that four high school age young men would be so committed to God amidst all those circumstances. If anyone has an excuse to take their foot off the pedal, there is these guys. They say, God, you don't know what we just walked through. God, I, I need a second to regroup. But what we find, as we'll see in a moment, man, they instantly lean in. Now, they didn't just arrive in Babylon. And note here, the writer goes out of the way to note that they are the best and the brightest. These are influential young men. These are men who are on the up and up. These are not the fringes of society. And the question becomes, why did they choose them rather than the others? Here's why. The Babylonian practice at this time had a twofold uh, purpose, if you will, to carry away the best and the brightest, you were carrying away those who could influence the people that were left behind that could ferment rebellion and uprising. How do you stomp out a rebellion? You take away the influential people, right? You just leave the fringes down there. They're not going to ferment a rebellion there. So you take away the best and the brightest. So you take care of away and you bring them home. And as you're bringing them home, you reprogram them. They're put in a three-year school. You indoctrinate them with your beliefs, your customs, and your languages. And you teach them to be a part of your society. You see the hope and the purpose and the goal of this whole school that these four men walked through along with the others was that they would become thriving members of the Babylonian Empire. And therefore, the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar would benefit because of that. This is why the empire was as powerful as it was. And so these men are thrown into the school. They're taught the customs and the language of the Chaldeans. That's another name for Babylonians. And they're assigned portions of food and wine. And notice here, and we'll talk about this in more detail in just a minute. Notice here, they start to change their names. Or not start, they do change their names. Why is this a big deal? Because names speak about our identity, right? I'm from Johnsonville, South Carolina. If you tell me you're from my area, you know what I'm going to do? Who's your mama? Who's your daddy? right? Because I'm looking for a connection with that name. And that's how I begin to perceive that relationship there. Even more so in Daniel 1, our name's important. All of their original Hebrew names point to the one true God, but the names they are now given in Babylon point to the false gods of Babylon. Slow and steady is the Babylonian empire trying to lull these men to sleep and to reprogram how they think and how they function and believe. So what do they do? Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? 
Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So here's their response. Right out of the gates, we're told, so Daniel and the boys refused to defile themselves with the king's food. Now let's, let's get a clear picture of what we're talking about here. This wasn't just prisoner food or exile food or just the low totem pole food. But as scholars describe it, this would have been like, in our terms today, like steaks, mashed potatoes, like the good stuff. Some of y'all shaking your head, you have good food tastes like I do, right? You're smelling the steaks, the ribeyes, the New York strips, right? The king is offering you almost food from his table. And think about all the trauma that you've just walked through. And you smell this food and you see the temptation of this food. And you say, is it really that big of a deal? This was the temptation here. But as we're told, Daniel and the boys resolved that they would not defile themselves. And we said, well, why? Well, one, we know that it was a dietary infringement, right? This was in violation of the dietary call of the Old Testament. But we also know that Daniel would live for seven to eight more decades in Babylon. So if he was going to refuse all the food and just live off some broccoli and some water that he chooses over the next 10 days, like that's not a good recipe to live long, right? Even as healthy as broccoli is, you can't live off of just broccoli. But what we do know is that, one, it was a violation of dietary restrictions. So that was one level of refusing it. But as another scholar pointed out, he said it this way. He said not only was it a violation of dietary laws, but even more so, this was Daniel and the guys saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, our dependence, being reminded for themselves, our dependence is upon God alone and not your delicacies. So think about that. Everyone else is eating good, and you got some veggies and some water on your plate. It's a reminder that our dependence is not on the Babylons of this world, but it's on the God who provides. And this is what we find them doing here. Notice here, God rewards that. God gives favor and compassion in this moment. Right? The chief of eunuchs is like, listen, we can't do this because the king will kill me if you guys are starving over here. But with that favor and compassion that God gives Daniel and the guys, what we find is after 10 days... They present themselves as healthier and fatter in the flesh, as the text says. So think about this. Ten days. If you change your diet for the next ten days, would it really make that much of a difference? I would say it this way to the first couple of services. That if I'd never lifted weights and I started lifting weights for ten days, would I really see that much of a difference? Probably not. So therefore, this is a miracle by God. God's fingerprints are all over this, right? He uses our commitment. He uses our faithfulness. He uses our willingness to take a stand for him to impact pagan kingdoms all across the land. And so at the end of 10 days, they are presented in better appearance. And the guys say, hey, keep giving them that broccoli and water. They're beginning to have an impact here. Now, to summarize 17 through 21, we won't read it for a second time. What we're told is that at the end of this three-year school 
They are presented before King Nebuchadnezzar, and they are found to be ten times better than anyone else that is in that school with them. And therefore, they are given key positions here, and especially Daniel. And it's noted in verse 17 that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, these are already gifted young men, but here God is gifting them even more. And this was especially important. Why? Because in the Babylonian culture, if you could interpret dreams or visions, this was highly valued. In fact, in the very next chapter, when King Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams, he's getting ready to kill his dream interpreters because they can't figure it out until Daniel steps up. And because of how God has gifted him, he uses that gift to impact this king here. As we're told at the end of this chapter, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. To put it this way, Daniel was probably 14 when he walked into the Babylonian Empire, never to see his homeland again. And we believe he was somewhere around 80 to 90 years old when he died. And so the question becomes... For these men, and even for us today, how do we respond? We said we're living in a modern-day Babylon, and they were living in a physical Babylon of ancient. How did they respond? Well, one, we have to realize just that. We're in Babylon. We have to quit playing like we're not. We have to call a spade a spade here. We have to understand the context that we are in today. We are living in a Babylon. So therefore, we must understand the pressure that we face and also the call amidst this context that we're living in. And we see this in three ways. Number one, you will be pushed to compromise. You will be pushed to compromise. Who are, who are we talking about here? You, that is, those are believers, will be pushed to compromise in a modern-day Babylon. How do we know this? Well, you can see from Daniel 1, it's clear from the get-go, pressure was all around them. As soon as they stepped into Babylon, it's not like, hey, we're going to give you a few moments to collect your thoughts and, and put your things together. No, this was a captured people. And they were going to do what the Babylonians said or they were pressured to do if they were going to survive in this land. And so as soon as Daniel and the boys get there, you'll notice they're thrown into this reprogramming school, this indoctrination, if you will, to learn the ways and the customs. The hope of that would be that they come out of there as fully-fledged, allegiant Babylonians there. And so the pressure is there from the get-go. They are being pushed to compromise. You also notice this, that in this moment, it's not full frontal assault of compromise. They're not saying, hey, if you don't compromise, we'll chop your head off. But rather, this is a slow and steady, an inch here, an inch there. Give here, give there. And then you look up and you're all the way over there because of your compromise. So how do we see this? Put them in school, start teaching the language, the values, the customs, change their names, slide in the king's food, make them dependent upon the Babylonian empire. They don't want them to live out their faith. Why? Because whether it's the Babylon of ancient or whether it's the Babylon we live in here today, they don't want anything to do with the gospel we preach, the God we serve. Why? Because our God tells them and tells you and me that we are not enough, that we are sinners, that we fall short of his standard. And we'll never be enough. We'll never put together enough good deeds or great empires to achieve what we need to achieve to be right with him. The Babylonians know this, but they refuse to do anything about it. We who are believers, we know this, but we have responded rightly. In fact, in just a few chapters, you'll find King Nebuchadnezzar walking and looking out amongst his kingdom. And he says, how great am I? How much have I done? How great is my kingdom? And God deals with him accordingly. 
And so what we find is that the world doesn't want anything to do with a sinless Savior. So therefore, it will pressure us to conform, to compromise. As we said, there will not necessarily be direct threats, though that time does come. But first and foremost, it comes slow and steadily in terms of a whisper, if you will. If I would just give this, I can have that. If I just let go of this belief, man, they'll elevate me here. If I back off of this at my job, they'll promote me. If I lean into this that the world is saying, I'll get in this friend group over here. I'll gain that approval. And it's slow and steady. Yet following God and having faith in God really is a call not to compromise. You see, these men, they could have stayed in Babylon, kept their faith private. You know, do your whole God thing when you get home. But when you're in the Babylonian school, you're Babylonians. What we understand is being committed to God means that it's not a private option for our faith. Commitment was no small thing to these men. And it's the same for us here today. Here's what compromise does to us. Leads us to point number two. Compromise will push you to commit to what doesn't matter. Because some of us may say, hey, compromise is needed in the world, right? If I buy a house, I, as buyer and seller, I have to compromise on some things there, right? In a marriage, if you're going to have a good marriage, you have to compromise on some things, right? Relational and worldly standpoint, compromise isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when it comes to spiritual things of God, it is a bad thing. Why? Because point two, compromise will push you to commit to what doesn't matter. You can just imagine what these guys are facing. They arrive in Babylon. They're shell-shocked about what's just happened. They're exiles. They're never going to return home. They've seen family members die. They've seen friends die. And you can imagine a Babylonian eunuch walking up to them and saying, Hey, if you guys just fall in line here, you'll get some pretty sweet positions in the government. You'll get some jobs that make you some good money. The people will like you. You'll have great social status, far better than you ever found in Israel. You can just hear that from the eunuch's words here. They're wanting them to commit to the worldly empires. Why? Because that's how Babylon continues. There's always this call and compromise to commit to something that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But yet the Babylons of this world and even our world today will call you and me, even as most faithful believers, to give in to trinkets and treasures just to get along in this world. Just to survive. And they'll sell you this bill of goods that'll say, hey, it's not only going to help you survive, but you can thrive in this society. You can get positions of importance. You can get the fat paycheck. You can live in the gated communities. You can do this. You can do that. If you just compromise and commit to what really doesn't matter. You see, the irony in that is the treasures that they promise us, as the Bible tells us clearly, they will all fade away one day. They will all rust and be consumed by fire. And the other irony in this is that Daniel and his friends, they end up in the key positions by not compromising. You'll notice God rewards their faithfulness. They are put in key positions. Daniel is literally the right-hand man of the most powerful man in the world at that time. For decades, he influences this pagan kingdom and empire for God. Why? Because he refuses to compromise. He refuses to value that which really doesn't matter. So the question becomes, what am I committed to? Now, hear me well. This is not a promise that if I refuse to commit to worldly things, that God will put me in a high up place. That's not a guarantee of that. 
But what it is a guarantee of, and what we really see throughout the book of Daniel is this, is that when I am committed to God above all else, and I don't commit the things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things, that God will use that commitment. God will use that faithfulness to impact kingdoms. Now, it may be on a small scale. It may be a scale that no one ever knows. It may be on a grand scale, and praise God for that. All are worthy responses there. All are worthy outworkings, if you will. So the question becomes, what am I committed to here today? And does it really matter? You say, Corey, I don't know how to figure that out. Where do you spend your time, your money, your free time? Where's your family's focus? Is it a job? Is it a paycheck? Is it a community? Is it retirement? Again, none of those things are bad. But when they are the priority, when they are calling for absolute commitment, that is when it's out of whack there. So how do we live then, right? We talked about we'll be pushed to compromise, and compromise will push us to commit. What's our response in that? How do we respond? Well, point three tells us. You will thrive when you are committed to being close to God. You will thrive when you are committed to being close to God. To put it another way, you will thrive in Babylon when you are in lockstep with Jesus. You see, these men, it's clear, even before they were in exile, they had a faith in God, right? You don't just get exiled and see the horrific scene that they've seen of their people being conquered and slaughtered and carried off as 14-year-olds and say, oh, now it's time to find God in the moment when everything's going sideways. No. The commitment to Jesus for us to live in Babylon has to be right now. Even if you're not facing any pressure to compromise. The commitment to Jesus is called for at all times. Whether the compromise is at a fever pitch of a temptation or whether we're barely hearing it, the compromise is, is always there. We are called to be committed to God, just as these men were. These men were committed to God no matter the cost or the circumstance. And as we walk through the book of Daniel, you'll see that. They were willing to even lose their lives because they wouldn't give an inch on where they stood with God. And it happens time and again in the book of Daniel. So how do we thrive in Babylon? Three ways. You stay committed to Jesus by consistently walking with him daily. Number one, privately. I told the first two services this. I'll tell you guys. I believe that the fuel that we need is found in the word of God every single day. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the expectation should be, and I'm sorry if this is too blunt for you. Actually, I'm not. That you should read the word of God every day. But I'm too busy. But you don't know how early I got to get up. But you don't know how busy I am. If you're too busy to read the word of God, you're too busy. Turn off the TV earlier. Wake up earlier. Whatever it is, find time to be in the word. Why? Because this is the foundation of how we thrive in Babylon. Secondly, corporately. You'll notice that Daniel leans on the guys and the guys are leaning on him. They operate as a, as a unit. You got to be plugged into a community. You cannot thrive in Babylon alone. So if you're not a part of a local church, change that today if you're a follower of Jesus. Publicly, that I'm not afraid to stand when the moments come. Because if I live out my faith for Jesus, if I'm committed to live for Jesus and to seek out that thriving in Babylon, moments will come where I may face down a lion's den. Moments will come where I may face a fiery furnace. Moments will come when I'm pressured to eat the king's food, but I'm going to make the unpopular choice to keep eating broccoli and water. Those moments will come, and I need to be prepared. Many of us long to be used like Daniel. Many of us long to be used by God. But the real question is, not will God use us, 
But am I as committed as these men are? And if that's not the case for me as a believer, that needs to change today. If I'm not a believer in Jesus, understand this. We mentioned earlier, you're living for trinkets and treasures of empires that will one day fade. You can get the house, you can get the paycheck, you can get the family, you can get the American dream. But one day the American dream ends. And it's really a nightmare. The only dream that truly comes true is the reality and the truth that is found in the God who has sent his son to free you from such trinkets and treasures and to find what you were truly created for. And so the call for you today is simply this, that you would start a conversation today and say, how can I know that God who allows me to thrive even when the circumstances are dire? For the Christians in here today, what am I committed to? I'll share one quick story with you from my time overseas. I've shared a couple with you. But when I was overseas 2012 in this closed-off country that really, really resembled Babylon, I mean, they were not friendly to our beliefs. We hosted a first house church meeting that summer in our apartment, two-bedroom apartment. We crammed over 50 people in this house church. And here are young college-aged people sitting here. And they are worshiping God, knowing the cost. Knowing that the authorities can knock on our door at any time and haul off all of them. And there will never be any questions asked. They would simply disappear. And here I am sitting in here and they know full well the cost of being in this room. They know not only the cost of being in that room, but know even more the cost of singing praise and hymns to God for over two hours of which they did. Couldn't understand a word of it. I didn't know the language, but I knew they were praising God. And what I found remarkable in that moment was that they didn't care about the cost. They cared about worshiping God in the middle of Babylon. And then later on in that service, we're, we're led to actually the bedroom where I was sleeping with like three or four other guys in bunk beds. And they led them to the bathroom where I literally had taken a shower earlier that morning. And they filled up the bathtub and two or three walked up to be baptized. And they asked them, they said, you know what this cost could be? Are you committed to it? The cost could simply be the government finds out they're baptized and again, they disappear. And through teary eyes, not tears of sadness, but tears of joy, they say, yes, we're committed. We're committed to this Jesus. And every time I think about that commitment, it brings about conviction, even in the position I'm in now. And I say, my goodness, they're willing to go into a bathtub to be baptized at the cost of their lives, maybe. And some days, man, I just dread getting up on a Sunday because it's inconvenient. Folks, if we're going to impact Babylon today, our commitment in God has to be the priority. Where is your commitment today? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're God who sees us where we are, who notes that we are in Babylon. You understand the pressures, you understand the compromise, yet you tell us in Mark to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and to follow you because that is the only worthy path. So God, I pray for those in here who do not know you, that they would see the trinkets and treasures of Babylon will never satisfy. And they would see that you are the one who ultimately satisfies. God, I pray for those of us in here who do know you, that our priorities would be arranged as such, that you are lifted high no matter the cost or circumstance, that you are the priority, and that we are seeking to thrive for you even when the culture may be shouting us down. May we impact kings and kingdoms for your greatness, for your majesty, Lord, that lives will be changed. 
We ask these things in your name. Amen.